The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar is proud to be part of America's booming solar industry. The company's solar manufacturing facility supports 400 U.S. workers directly contributing to the burgeoning clean energy economy. That's not the only benefit of being located in the U.S., though. Mission Solar's Texas-based headquarters make it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. With a state-of-the-art R&D lab, Mission Solar pushes cutting-edge technology to the consumer after passing it through the highest reliability testing the solar industry has to offer. You can find out more about Mission's cells and modules at missionsolar.com. And one last thing, don't miss our Solar Market Insight Conference coming up on October 25th and 26th in San Diego, California. We've got execs from NRG, SunPower, EDF, Enphase, and many others, plus tons of utilities and our team of editors and researchers. This is the place for candid, data-filled conversations on everything related to the solar business. I'll be there, too, doing a live version of the Interchange podcast with some special guests. That's the Solar Market Insight Conference on October 25th and 26th in San Diego. Energy Gang listeners, get a special offer because you're special people. When you check out, use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, for 15% off. Go to greentechmedia.com events to find out more, or you can just click the link in the show notes on your mobile device. See you in San Diego. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Last night, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton squared off for their first presidential debate, coming face-to-face after a long, bizarre election season. In the days leading up to the debate, we got more details on Trump's energy transition team. During the debate, we got more small hints on his worldview. And today, we're going to square his stances with, well, reality. Then an update on Obama's signature climate rule that is now stuck in court. Arguments began this week, and we'll tell you what to look for and to listen for. Finally, GM is getting ready to roll out its 2017 all-electric car, the Bolt. Is this the affordable EV we've all been waiting for? My co-hosts are here, as always, to help us absorb these stories, or in the case of Trump, shock absorb these stories. Catherine Hamilton is a partner with 38 North Solutions, and she's in Washington, D.C. Catherine, how's your stamina today? It's great. I'm just shimmying all the way. (laughs) I'm assuming most people watch the debate, but those are two veiled debate jokes. So if you don't get them, go back and watch the debate. Jigger Shah is in New York City. He's the president of Generate Capital. How are you, sir? How was your debate night? It was good. I'm convinced that that Trump emailed his tax returns to Hillary's server for safekeeping, which is why he wants to see the deleted emails. I, I also think that it's it's stuck in a P.O. box in the Kremlin somewhere as well. <laughs> So here we are, gang. We're 41 days out from the election. We won't know the latest poll numbers coming out of last night's debate for a couple of days, but they've been tight in the lead up. Although the odds are still stacked against Trump, there's a very real prospect that he could be the next president of the United States. So how did Donald Trump do in the first debate? Uh, By most accounts, he was unable to keep his composure in the second half, even though you could tell he was trying really hard. And he eventually broke into his interrupting, his bizarre, incredulous facial contortions, his mansplaining, and, well, straight-up lies. One lie came very early in the debate when Clinton called for making America a clean energy superpower and correctly explained that Trump has called climate change a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. Trump continued to interrupt her by claiming he never said that. In fact, there are multiple tweets saying exactly that. Oh, and he once called climate change bullshit, and he often says that snowstorms are a reason the world isn't warming. All of these things are very well documented. Trump also tried to bring up Solyndra in this really awkward way, which 
kind of surprised me. It was like this weird ghost from the 2012 election reappearing, and he failed to give his uh, delivery any punch. I don't think he really quite understood the reference, and it came out kind of muddled. And, you know, you'd really have to be a politico who understood that issue to know exactly what he was talking about. But he did reference Solyndra, and that was his way of saying, like, sorry, solar doesn't work. So let's get into all that first, and then we'll go into Trump's latest campaigning and uh, some of the folks that he's picked for his team. Jigger, you say candidates like Hillary don't often message in the right way, but unprovoked in this debate, right off the bat, she talked about jobs and economic growth becoming a clean energy superpower right there in the beginning. What did you think of that short exchange when she dropped solar and clean energy? It was kind of what you've been asking for, right? Yeah, but but she didn't she didn't use the right sort of framing. Like so the the section that it was in was in the jobs section. I think had she said that one out of every 80 jobs since the great recession came from the solar industry and that the solar industry is still hiring, you know, uh veterans and minorities and women and others at very high levels, then, you know, it would have stuck. But instead, the only thing that stuck about the solar reference in that debate was all of the anti-Cylindra folks that were tweeting like mad. No, I saw a lot of people who had a lot of ammunition against the Cylindra messaging. People saying like, oh, they did well, back the and loan forth. guarantee program is going to make money. This isn't representative of the solar industry. Here's all this documentation of the successful portfolio of companies supported by the but this is loan where- guarantee program. But this is where Trump, I think, has uh, his his real his finger on the pulse of the electorate. Like he really like knows how to just like put in these sort of one line zingers. And 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 I just think that like Hillary was basically saying, you know, advanced manufacturing and solar is going to be great. And I'm just thinking if I'm somebody who doesn't pay any attention whatsoever to these types of technologies, am, is that line going to stick with me during this debate? And I don't think it would. Okay, I agree with that. So first of all, we are hyper-criticizing this debate. It's easy for us three to kind of sit here and parse each word, and God knows what I would say if I stood up there and I had to think about all these talking points on all these issues. With that said, I do agree that there was a point here where she could have just immediately come back and said, sorry, we have 200,000 jobs now in solar. Uh, That's a success story. Leave it at that. And that would have been a really nice counter. And she has those numbers at her fingertips. And and she's got a really smart energy team. And so I hope that they're thinking about how to bring back those zingers because the numbers are really good. But I do say that, uh, you know, humbly because I understand how difficult it is there to sit up there and try to remember every single stat and every zinger. Yeah, and they didn't have a lot of policy discussion. I mean, maybe in the next debates, they'll talk more about energy policy. I mean, she said half a billion solar panels, and she talked about grid modernization, which really got me excited too. And I think that's all part of her plan uh, to do more with infrastructure, which is great. I mean, when her husband was president, we were just trying to get him to say energy and efficiency together. I mean, she's really all in. And part of that is because our world has very much changed since then. But I'm hoping that they'll really have a more meaty discussion on energy policy. Of course, I'm hoping that, but I don't know if policy is ever really going to be a discussion in these debates. Well, historically, they just really haven't talked much about energy policy. They've waited for the campaigns to bring it up. Up. They very rarely talk about climate change. And it's if, if given the previous debates over the last few election cycles, I don't expect it to come up in a big way. But Hillary Clinton does want to talk about these issues. I think she wants to bring up climate change because she knows that she needs to reach out to millennials who are way more concerned about this issue than uh, folks across other age groups. So I, I expect Hillary Clinton to keep hammering away at these issues because it's strategically good for her given who she's trying to reach out to. Well, I also think she needs to convince some folks who are normally fairly conservative on the financial side, but who really are changing what they're what they are investing in to clean energy. And I would love to hear Jigger's thoughts on that. But I feel like the investor community, while some of them have traditionally voted Republican, may be looking at Hillary Clinton as as the option this time because she believes in this. Yeah, look, I mean, let's just start by saying that Donald Trump was a train wreck. 
at this debate. And I thought Hillary Clinton like did her best to like stay composed. And like when she literally was just getting interrupted every eight seconds. Um, But I think to your question, Catherine, it's really about feeling, right? I mean, Goldman Sachs is saying that between 2015 and 2020, we will deploy more energy in solar and wind than we got from all of fracking. Than we got from all of fracking. That is a big freaking deal. I don't feel like the American electorate is excited about what's coming over the next five years than they were during the fracking, you know, sort of drill baby drill stuff in 2008. And you can tell that story without sounding like you're anti-fossil fuel if you're trying to walk this fine line like Hillary Clinton. I mean, she needs all the support from throughout the energy industry that she can get. And it's very clear that many of the folks in the fossil fuel industry are starting to gravitate toward Trump. You can tell that story without uh, being a threat to the fossil fuel industry explicitly. Now, given she's talked about a moratorium on certain types of drilling, uh, she wants to take away subsidies for fossil fuels. She's been very clear and pretty aggressive about that. But there are so many good stories that can turn into zingers for these debates that I really wish the candidate would throw out there more. Um, Because quite frankly, when Donald Trump says, oh, yeah, investing in solar was a failure, you can throw a lot at him in a very short period of time that makes him look like a complete idiot. Yeah. And well, and she did talk about the fact that he didn't pay taxes and and those that tax money really goes to paying for people. You could use the same line here, right? In over 80 counties in the United States, wind and solar or have actually literally doubled their tax base. That's money that goes to schools and police and firefighters and new roads. Well, with this said, it's pretty amazing that we have a candidate who, despite what you think about Hillary Clinton, her politics, her trustworthiness, focused exclusively on the issues that we discuss on this podcast. Within the first couple of minutes of the debate, She started talking about half a billion solar panels, grid modernization, uh, clean energy jobs, becoming a clean energy superpower. That tells you where we stand. I thought that was pretty amazing that that came up very quickly. So let's go into like the campaign itself. Trump has been busy over the last week on the campaign trail, and he gave this energy speech in Pennsylvania where he declared that America needs to drill for more more oil and burn more coal and showed an unsurprisingly low understanding of market forces in energy. Finally, we learned this week as well that Trump has a new transition team in place. E&E News broke the story about Trump's picks to lead transition teams at the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Agency. They include Myron Ebel, a prominent climate skeptic for the EPA, um, basically he wouldn't be running the EPA. He'd be trying to tear down the EPA. And um, Andy Revkin over at Dot Earth had a pretty good piece on uh, Myron's background. And Mike McKenna, who's a lobbyist for Coke Industries and Southern Company, uh, longtime GOP operative, uh, he would run the DOE transition team. Meanwhile, oil mogul Harold Hamm has been advising Trump, and Sarah Palin's name has been floated around for energy secretary. So we've got some pretty sufficient details here on where Trump would head with energy policies, even if we don't have explicit policy papers coming out of his shop. Uh, I think the people that he's putting around him tell us a lot. Catherine, what what more do we know about uh, Trump now that he seems to have this transition team in place? Well, um, there was a really terrifying piece that Evan Osnos wrote in The New Yorker, and that was even before Myron Abel's name had come out, um, that in the first day in office, basically Donald Trump could erase every bit of progress that um, President Obama has made on climate, with the exception of the Clean Power Plan, because it's in the regulatory process and it's a final rule. Um, you know, that's We're going to talk about that in the next segment. But 
basically he could just turn the clock back on everything and undo a lot of what's been done. He could back out of the Paris Agreement. He could start Keystone again. He could start up trade cases against China and you know destroy that relationship. So there's a lot that he could do very quickly from the executive power. You know, that's not to mention the fact that these two fellows who would be leading the transition would really be trying to undo the agency work. Now, what Mike McKenna may not know is that most of what DOE does is nuclear stockpile issues. So uh, while DOE has a nice research and development program for energy, they also deal with weapons. And I think that's something that, you know, I don't know if a, if an industry lobbyist would really uh, be able to to deal with, or if, you know, never mind the fact of Sarah Palin getting, Palin getting in there would be able to deal with. Well, I, I'm also not as afraid about this stuff as other people are. I, I, you know, I think when you think about what George Bush, W. Bush did, he really did exactly what we're afraid of with Donald Trump. He brought in some of the most anti, you know, what we care about lobbyists into... Um, into power and um and it didn't you know it what it did was it really like you know led the way for fracking and some of the clean water act gutting etc but we also got a tremendous amount of you know boost in solar and wind and other things i, I just think that like what we're doing right now with 40 plus billion dollars going into solar this year etc it doesn't really matter how bad their rhetoric is i mean at some point we have so many Republicans making so much money off of solar that they can't actually destroy the regulations there. Well, see, that's what I would worry about and and hope that you're right on Jigger. I'm very nervous that having people in there who do, who do who want to turn the clock back on energy, whether or not it can actually be turned back, puts an element of uncertainty into the industry. And that's what I would be concerned about is where is the investment going to go with that kind of uncertainty? I've been talking to a bunch of people within the DOE and outside the DOE working on some preliminary reporting for a story that I'm putting together on what the Department of Energy would look like under the Trump administration. I don't want to give away too much here because the story is still under development and I'm seeing where it takes me. But I'm you know, hearing a few different concerns. If we saw Trump come in, I don't think he could just completely dismantle everything. I mean, Sure, he has people around him who say that that's what they want. But you have, um, you know, (laughs) the nuclear program itself, um, you know, the nuclear nuclear administration would be almost impossible to dismantle. You have a lot of career staff there who've been there for so long, who would dig in their heels and just work under any any administration. I think they would tough it out. Uh, There are certain programs that, you know, could you could start scaling back funding pretty quickly, like the Sunshot Initiative, um, like Mission Innovation. There are areas that could be targeted very quickly. Um, But my sense is that people are worried. Uh, They're worried about a brain drain or about the inability to fill jobs, but that it wouldn't be an all-out catastrophe, that all of a sudden President Trump would come in and just completely dismantle everything overnight. It doesn't work like that. Uh, There are budgetary controls that prevent that from happening. There are a lot of institutional factors with career staff who, uh, you know, would ensure that the place stays together. So it's a pretty complicated picture. With that said, people are very worried, uh, scared even. But we're not talking about someone who's going to come in and just completely blow the place up. So I would worry about national labs because we had trouble under the Bush administration on programs being shut down and never coming back again because the you know the administration decided to go in a different direction and shut down an entire program. And when you lose folks from labs, uh, it's really hard to get that, as you say, the brain trust back. Yeah, but even under the Bush administration, when we shut programs down, I mean, when I was working um, as a consultant in the Clinton administration, we were desperately trying to shut programs down, and we couldn't for the life of us because these lifelong, you know, folks who work in the labs like just refused to have their programs die. I mean, we I think we were funding twenty two different alternative fuels, most of which had no chance in hell of ever getting somewhere, and still haven't. Um, at some point, we do need to have the ability to be more nimble in the labs and not, um, you know, let programs perpetuate for decades upon decades. 
This is an important conversation, but I think we're missing the bigger point. We can quibble all day about what exactly would change within the DOE, and I think there are very real concerns about the clean energy infrastructure that's been built up there over the last 12, 14 years and how that might get dismantled. The two biggest items are the clean power plan and how that is connected to the global climate agreement that was signed in uh, December of last year. Donald Trump says he will rip up the agreement. He would not want to ratify it. And he says that he would scrap the clean power plan. The global agreement was basically signed by a lot of countries because they saw the U.S. moving on the clean power plan. And once that goes away, then and and we decide to uh, renege on our commitments to a, a global greenhouse gas reduction target, we're it, we've been set back many, many, many years of diplomacy and of hard work. So that's the big fear, really. I, I think again, I, I I don't know I don't know if I agree. I mean, we've already ratified it. We've got sixty countries that have ratified it, representing forty eight percent of all emissions in the world. Once we get to fifty five percent of emissions, um, it'll become in force, and that's expected to happen by the end of November, probably. And so, my sense is is that like you know, when President Trump comes into office in January and he reneges on something. It will be already in force. And so it's sort of, okay, you know, that's fine. Do what you want to do. It's still American companies that are exporting its technology around the world to meet the Paris agreements. Well, there will definitely be a lot of private sector pressure on him not to renege on this commitment. But if there, you know, this is not just Donald Trump spewing off some BS on the campaign trail. We now see his team of people who have made it very clear that they would make it their mission to tear down the CPP and this global climate agreement. So right, we're talking about real world exactly? consequences now and people who have made it their mission to do this, not right, just some what, weird statement from the campaign trail. Right, but to what end? I mean, like Bloomberg just did an analysis showing that if Donald Trump became president and even half of his stuff got put into to place that we would have an 11% reduction in natural gas sales. I mean, like, I honestly don't think that he's smart enough or the people that work for him to actually get any of this stuff right. Right, but that... The, co- the coal industry is dying because it's dying, not because there's anything he could do. Do you think he's actually going to spend a trillion dollars of U.S. government money propping up the coal industry? I doubt it. No, I don't think he will. But I think if he is serious about scrapping the clean power plan. That's what that Bloomberg analysis was predicated on. If we get rid of the CPP, then we're going to see a reduction in gas because the CPP is good for building new gas plants. Right. And, and is that and awful? We'll see. Is that awful? Well, they I'm, say look, that we'll I'm, fill I mean, it in with coal plants because n- there will be fewer coal plants shutting down. And we all know how you feel I, about coal. I think you health. guys like, I, I think that these are just words on a page. The amount of money that you have to spend to get these coal plants operating in a way that actually makes sense is gargantuan. It is not something that's easy to do. In Ohio right now, they are figuring out whether to vote on giving $400 million a year in subsidies to one coal plant to keep it operational. That is what it's going to take to keep these operational, even at the state level. These coal plants are dying not because we regulated them out of existence, but because they're actually just super old technology that have 14 layers of emission controls on them that are not cost effective. And because natural gas is cheaper. Right. So, Jigger, the thing is that what does worry me is that experience over history shows that presidents do what they say they're going to do. It's not just them hyper not just hyperbole and i think that while trump does seem to have a lot of hyperbole i think he's going to do a lot of what he says he's going to do and in fact it may even be worse so i'm worried about that i mean if anything if you think that some what he's claiming is just rhetoric at least you should be worried about his inability to grasp the basics of the renewable energy industry this is one of the greatest economic success stories since the recession and the man has no clue that alone should worry you right but worry me about what i mean here's what i'm saying is that like look i don't about having a vision for tackling the greatest environmental problem humanity has ever right but i don't think trump is going to get elected because i don't think the guy even has a ground game i mean he has one office open in florida i mean i just think that the the way that people win Presidential elections is by getting out the vote, not by winning poll numbers. Poll numbers have nothing to do with how many people actually get out of their chair and go to the the polls to vote, 
right? And Hillary's basically doing a tremendous job on the ground of getting out the vote, phone calling and all sorts of other stuff. The vast majority of, of Republican officials that we care about, whether it's in Ohio or New Hampshire, are calling for split ticket voting because they know that they if they tie their coattails to Trump that they're going to lose. So Rob Portman is, you know, pushing everyone to split ticket vote. So is, you know, Kelly Ayotte, who I don't actually hope wins in New Hampshire. And so I think that when you think about, first of all, the chances of him winning, it's practically zero. And the second thing is that basically if he did win, I'm, all I'm saying is, is that the solar industry is an industry of people who care deeply about you know, providing their customers with a good quality product, whether it's independence, whether it's cost savings, whether it's whatever. And I think we're going to continue to do that regardless the, of who wins the presidency. And the, the, odds, the odds are not zero. The odds are, look, I mean, even... Nate Silver. Nate Silver came out today and said that if Trump, the election were held today, Trump would win now. Nate Silver admits today. fully that his, his methodology does not work with Trump because his methodology is based purely on poll numbers. And, and he just expects that the ground game and all the other stuff that people use. And he, he had a piece on this the other day about how, you know, that that Obama basically got an extra 1.7 percent because of his ground game versus Mitt Romney. Now, you're talking about a guy in like, you know, in Mitt Romney that actually tried. I mean, Trump isn't even trying. He doesn't have any money whatsoever going into ground game. Yeah, but the fact that he has no ground game, very few offices, relies on media attention and has gotten this far should give you pause. And people have been saying that exact same thing for the last 18 months, that Trump will never get this far. And all of a sudden, where do we find ourselves? That's why I, I, I will not... I can't go out on a limb and say that Trump won't win this election. I just uh, it, it's like impossible to say at this point. Anything's possible. I don't think anything's possible. What happens is things that we actually want to have happen that we work towards. Well, as much as I hope I wished that Republicans would start owning the clean energy messaging and narrative. Um, Trump is not taking that on. And I hope that in the next debate, Clinton does and that she gets more much more specific on what the clean en energy industry means for current and future jobs. Yep. So I certainly do not want to tell our listeners who to vote for because I've met a lot of our listeners over the years and they come from across the political spectrum. They got very different political views, but they all kind of share this passion for and the curiosity for the changes underway in the energy system. But let's just be clear. Uh, if we take seriously Donald Trump's words, his half-baked policy proposals, the people he surrounds himself with, he would be a catastrophic choice and set America back many years in our efforts to de decarbonize and uh, to diversify. And to quote you, Jigger, to take advantage of the greatest wealth opportunity in the history of the world. So I'll leave my thoughts at that. All right, so on to the next topic. If the presidential campaign is about style, this next conversation is about substance. The Clean Power Plan is in court this week. Today, a U.S. Court of Appeals will hear arguments about the legality of Obama's signature climate plan. Ever since the Supreme Court halted implementation of the Clean Power Plan in February, it's been in legal limbo. Everyone in D.C., okay, well, everyone who Catherine hangs around with, is biting their nails in anticipation. What will a ruling say about a potential Supreme Court ruling later? Catherine, when we look back through history, what, what do you think this day will signify? And, and to be clear, that might change after we see what the arguments are. We're recording this at the very moment that arguments are being delivered. But what do you think about its significance? Yeah, so I talked to somebody pretty close to the case this morning, and the point that they made was that the core notion of regulating greenhouse gases as endangering public health and welfare is not at issue. Remember, Massachusetts versus EPA, the Supreme Court upheld that CO2 and greenhouse gases were harmful and that EPA had the ability and the obligation to control those. And that was both in vehicles and in power plants. So this is a much more technical discussion of process, procedure, authority, whether um, EPA is able to mandate CCS, whether it's able to go outside of the fence. Um, so, you know, there are, diff are several different ways it can go. One is that it could be remanded in part back to EPA. 
Um, but what that would mean is that it would still get a little bit of delay. The hope is, since that they are her- hearing this on banc, which means all of the judges, there are 10 judges listening to it and the panel today, um, six of them are Democrats, four of them are Republicans. That d- doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to uphold it um, because it is a very technical case. But what that means is that this is set up to be a final ruling because the Supreme Court will not take a case where they really kind of feel they're going to be split. Now, remember, there are eight of them, so they could easily split. And if you look at the Massachusetts versus EPA decision, Kennedy was in support of EPA regulating. So you essentially have Kennedy Ginsburg and Breyer already on record supporting regulating greenhouse gases. The two, uh, Sotomayor and Kagan, replaced um, who were then uh, Stevens and Breyer on the court. And the dissent was written by Roberts. Uh, Scalia is no longer there, of course, and Thomas and Alito also dissented. But the way the court is set up now would even look like in the Supreme Court that it would uphold EPA's right. But no matter what happens, this 10-judge panel could very well be the final word. It's a regular CPP party. 10 judges, 20 lawyers. Gosh, why are you not down there? Yeah, well, I waited seven hours for the Order 745 case, which was even wonkier, and I never got in. So (laughs) I knew there wasn't a chance this time. Amy Harder was live tweeting from in line she said that she got in line i think at 5 45 in the morning and someone had been in line since 8 45 p.m the night before wow that's hardcore going straight from the debate getting a couple hours sleep and then sitting in line outside the court waiting for a uh, clean power plan trial <laughs> yeah and i assume press members of the press get some passes too where uh you know if you're just a member of the public like i am i would never would never be able to get in. Uh, so as I understand you're a member this, of the energy gang. <laughs> <laughs> so as I understand this, Catherine, I really think that this comes down to states' rights, right? Well, that's what states are saying, definitely. I mean, there. It's also this weird amendment, this weird clerical error, right? Like the one eleven D, the in the Clean Air Act when they passed it through the House and the Senate. The House version w- had a ver- very narrow language in Section 111D about what pollutants could be regulated, but the Senate version left it open to future pollutants. And so that's the way the Obama administration has been interpreting this, and that's really w- what it's hanging on. Yeah, I mean, Jigger's right that the states, the 27 states that are opposed to the Clean Power Plan are arguing that they want more ability for the states to control their own destiny. The problem is, and remember, there are 18 states that are pro the Clean Power Plan. Uh, But the issue is, of course, you know, pollution doesn't stay within state borders. So this is really about public health and welfare. And I think EPA has a pretty strong argument. Also, remember the standard such that it is, a lot of states are already close to meeting it. I mean, this doesn't deal with new gas generations. This is just generation. This is just with existing generation. And most of the states are going to make it just on the trajectory they're on already. So if it is what we want is a quick decision so that we can go to strengthen it even more. And if it's not, then it just may take longer to implement. Three quarters of the states that are trying to block the clean power plan are already well on their way to meeting the 2024 targets. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think this is about principle, right? I mean, basically, I mean, I look, I agree that the Clean Power Plan is a good idea, and I think EPA should have the right to do it. But, but I think that the other 23 states are, who are on the other side of this are saying that, look, this is not going to end here, right? The Clean Power Plan, we all know, is the lowest common denominator plan, um, you know, basically designed to survive this court challenge. Um, and so once this occurs then EPA in the future will create Clean Power Plan 2.0 and then 3.0 and then 4.0, right, until it becomes relevant and is actually being used as a way to force, um, you know, stricter and stricter emissions regulations. Yes. Uh, You mean you could look at it that way or you could look at it as states are already going to exceed their compliance and it's shifting market and shifting investment and we won't need it in the future because the investment will go toward cleaner technologies. But do you think that's going to happen though, Catherine? It just seems to me like if this works and we get to whatever it is that we want to get to, then, you know, we still need to 
reduce emissions even further. You wouldn't think that we'd use this exact same formula to do it again? Well, you'd probably have to need a new, uh, put in a new section. I mean, I, I, there you are right that new gas plants are going to increase CO2 emissions, and this, those are not regulated under this, so eventually they're going to have to deal with those as well. My final takeaway, I'd love to get your perspective on this, both Catherine and Jigger. If this is eventually struck down, it's not clear that it destroys progress. Okay, so maybe you build less gas plants and you keep a lot more coal plants open, but generally we understand that through market forces, through decreasing renewable energy prices, state policy, low natural gas prices, this is where the market is headed. And as I mentioned, states are already well ahead um, in me- in reading, reaching their targets by the middle of uh, the 2020s. It's really a, a symbolic problem because it hurts us more internationally. And this cl- clean power plan was such an important part of getting the U.S. to convince other countries to sign this international agreement. And if somehow this is struck down, it hurts those it hurts those efforts, even though many have called this plan fairly weak to begin with, and we're probably going to see a lot more progress. How do you guys feel about that assessment? Because of Massachusetts versus EPA and the finding of CO2 and other greenhouse gases as harmful to public health, I mean, EPA is required to regulate them in some way. So something will replace it, even if this is struck down. And I think you're right that we're on a different trajectory, but I mean, something is going to have to, EPA is is mandated to do something. So when you look at the, uh, you know, Jerry Taylor's work, he's the former climate denier at Cato Institute, who's now come around and, you know, runs the Nisikon Center. Um, you know, his blog post from the 26th points out something interesting, which is we really do need to win this court case because this is exactly what the Republicans want to trade for a carbon tax. So there are seven Republicans who are lined up to introduce legislation in January, February about, you know, putting in place a carbon tax. And what they want for it is to strip EPA of its power to regulate CO2. So if the court strikes this down, then that trade will be less valuable. Well, this may be a different story after today's arguments. And I presume that we'll have another update on this as it moves its way through the legal system once again. Yeah, you'll get one. well. You'll get a sense after today's arguments of the questions that the justices were asking. So you'll get a sense of where they stand, but you still don't really know their decision. But I expect that we will get a decision in the late fall or early winter. In any case, before the next administration comes in. And I know you'll be camping out there at eight thirty p.m. the night before, right? <laughs> or, or, or waiting for Catherine Tweed to post her story. <laughs> And Jigger's going to be camping out waiting for the Chevy Bolt, or maybe not. I don't know. But we gave Tesla a lot of play when it released the Model 3, and we got a bit of flack for not giving attention to GM's Bolt made by Chevy. And the Bolt is, uh, as I mentioned, Chevy's new all-electric vehicle, now ready for release. Aside from being described as a, quote, squat wedge-shaped hatchback by Farhad Manju in the New York Times, I don't know why I got such a chuckle out of that, it is getting pretty good reviews. It's got a 238-mile range, the best in its class, and it comes in at a price of $37,000, or around $30,000 with a federal tax credit. That is well in line with what a lot of people already pay for all kinds of cars. So is GM ready to make a serious grab for the EV market? And can it convince some people waiting for Tesla's Model 3, which would uh, get delivered, you know, not for another year or two, would it convince them to buy a Bolt today? Jigger, what does the Bolt mean for the EV market, you think? Well, I think it's a real tipping point, right? I think the Leaf, which is probably the next sort of best comparison to the Bolt, um, you know, really, I think, still left people with a lot of range anxiety. So a lot of people, I know my brother's on his second Leaf now, um, you know, would always say, well, if we're going to go a short distance as we take the Leaf, if it was slightly longer, we wouldn't chance it and we'd take the... Um, the gasoline-powered car. And that's like a, what, 120-mile range? Technically, but, you know, most people were guided to 80. Oh, um, I didn't realize it had gone that low. Yeah, so most people were guided to don't go more than 80 miles with the Leaf. Um, and so so with the Bolt, you're talking about 200 miles. 
And at 200 miles, even the people who live in exurbs of Washington, D.C., commuting into the city, you know, can figure out, you know, how to how to like get to work and back without worrying about whether they can charge it at work. Right. And I think that's the key thing is once everyone realizes that they can charge at home and never charge outside of the home unless you're going long distances and then you're doing sort of a supercharger on the road, um, then charging stations don't matter anymore. Yeah, I think the more competition out there, the better, because this will give people options. And so I'm I'm excited to see some another car out there. People are calling this the Tesla killer. Everyone calls some new product that might compete with Tesla the Tesla killer. I roll my eyes every time I see that headline. With that said, they've got a pretty decent car here that's getting good reviews with a long range that is uh, available today. And they've got infrastructure to build out new models. Tesla, of course, is building out its factories in real time. But GM and Chevy can ramp up demand much faster than Tesla can. And of course, Tesla is not even building the first cars until next year. So they do have this competitive advantage in that they can build cars faster and they can get their car to market today. You know, the Model 3 is just a cooler car, right? If you're looking for a much sleeker car, you're buying a Tesla for a reason. And although many people may drop out of the the waiting list, you're still going to see a lot of people who are just willing to wait for a Model 3 because it's a much sleeker car, has slightly better performance. It's got a wow factor to it that GM's car doesn't. Um, but So let's go over the advantages in here. I, I kind of listed a few as I read many of the reviews. Tesla's advantages are great design, a little bit better performance and acceleration. Their interior tech integration is phenomenal and gets great reviews. And they've got their own supercharger network, just only for their cars. And so people can charge faster, and uh, it's exclusive to them as Tesla drivers. The Bolt advantages are that you've got a legacy brand. We've got you've got dealer infrastructure. You've got a long range compared to other similar EVs on the market. Good price, first to the market. And pretty solid, if not, you know, kind of underwhelming reviews. So it's a safer car, and it's here today. Well, a couple of issues. One is that the name brand, uh, the GM and Chevy name brand that you mentioned, that car is less built in America than the Tesla. The Tesla will be, the Model 3 will be, I think it's like 98% sourced in the U.S., whereas the Bolt, the battery, motor, and drive are all from South Korea and the final assemblies in Detroit. So it's actually the Tesla is more of an all-American car. The other big, huge issue is a policy issue, which is the tax credit, which makes these cars affordable which is $7,500 a car that goes to the purchaser of that car, every single company caps out at 200,000 cars. So no matter how many you put out on the assembly line, you hit 200,000, people can't get that credit anymore unless it's extended. I mean, so just to reframe this debate a little bit, I I think that this is more like Apple and Samsung. Um, So, you know, Chevy isn't there yet. Let's just be honest. Neither is Nissan, neither is Ford or... Audi or BMW or God knows whoever else has. What do you mean they're not there yet? Well, there isn't an actual like competitor to the dominant brand, right? I mean, there's Tesla and then there's everyone else who has compliance cars. And my sense is, is that what the Bolt might allow GM to do is really take that number two position. And I think that's fine. I don't think anyone needs to be a Tesla killer. I just think when you think about Apple and the iPhone, the fact that Samsung came on so strong and now you've got an equal number of people who are, you know, completely, you know, wedded to the the Android platform with Samsung and, you know, wait in line for that phone, just like uh, Apple users wait in line for the iPhone is important. And so I think that if you actually could get someone else who was, you know, giving Tesla a run for its money and competing with them, um, then you've had success because that, I think, creates the narrative and the story that people really want to be a part of. On the Tesla killer point, too, I don't, Elon Musk doesn't want a Tesla killer. I mean, the guy released his patents. He said that electrification's not happening fast enough. He wants other people to do it. He wants to encourage them to compete with Tesla. I think he thinks, hey, I've built a good brand. I know how to make a good car. I've got a pretty serious plan, and a lot of smart engineers are going to help me execute it. 
you guys go and do your thing and do it as fast as possible because we have an environmental imperative here. And I really appreciate that. And I think that the that, that's what kind of annoys me about the Tesla killer narrative too. Not only has it just become cliche because it's you know such an easy comparison to make, but I don't think Elon believes in that. I think he wants everyone to succeed in their own way. That's right. Yeah, and just on straight economics, it's better for him if there's more competition because people, more people are than out there shopping for an EV. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so I mean, the thing is, is I like the Bolt just because it's out. And um, I'm a little worried that the dealers and those guys within the Chevy network are not going to push the car. Um, you don't have that problem with Tesla because the Tesla dealers only have electric vehicles to sell. Um so I hope that the dealership really has the incentive to push the car. Um, and, and I do think it's important for the Bolt to exist because for a lot of people who haven't put a deposit down on the Model 3, um, they'd have to wait probably three years at this point to get a Model 3. Um, and, you know, that's if Elon's stretch goal, you know, with an added two years of padding, you know, doesn't come true. So um, I, I think three years is a long wait, a long wait for a car. Absolutely. I mean, on the dealer point, since between 2010, 2011, the GM dealerships, 3000 of them, they only sold 100,000 volts. So we'll see if there's demand for cars and if they can actually sell them themselves. Tesla's own retail stores are just set up in a completely different way, as you hinted to. Anyway, pretty remarkable, though, that that GM has come out with this long range vehicle, solves a lot of problems, getting pretty good reviews, filling in the gap while everyone waits for a Tesla Model 3. Um, You know, good things are happening in the EV market. And speaking of good things, hopefully you two have some good news stories for our final segment. Tell me something I don't know. It doesn't have to be a good news story, but uh, Catherine, we'll go over to you first. Sure. I know we've talked a little bit about the um, Massachusetts energy storage mandate and New York actually had a bill as well that was winding its way through committee. Now they're going to have to reintroduce it in the next uh, session. But meantime, Mayor de Blasio of New York City um, instituted an energy storage deployment target in the city of 100 megawatt hours by 2020. So um, this is to complement their target for solar capacity, which is set to 1000 megawatts by 2030. Um, and they have 2,700 solar-related jobs and are going to try to continue to grow that number. I think it, it says a lot that they've also put the storage mandate in place. And also, this is not a mandatory target, right? Basically, they're trying to say this is an aspirational goal, and now let's try to figure out all the policies, interconnection policies, get the financing together to make siting storage easier around the city, similar to what they did with their solar target. Yeah, I think they're complementary goals, and um, it just helps them. It's going to help them reach their other targets. Man, New York, just uh, on fire. Jigger, you're over in New York. Anything interesting your way? So there's a lot of great stories in New York, but I wanted to focus on um, Bill uh, Holmberg, who um, who has been around uh, the D.C. scene for a very long time and you know, really is an extraordinary individual. I think he... Um, you know, was born during the Great Recession. He um, really supported his family. I think from the age of four, he started working. Um, you know, fought for our country. Uh, you know, just did a tremendous amount of important policy work um, in the '70s and the '80s. Um, was a fixture at ACOR. Um, was always somebody who had uh, an extraordinary smile and an a great attitude um, and would fight you to the death on ethanol. Um, and, you know, just was somebody who was a real inspiration to me and he passed away this month and just wanted to make sure for those of you who uh, don't know who he is, please look him up and we'll probably put a link to one of his, um, you know, uh, obituaries. Yeah, he had an amazing life. He was a dear, dear friend. And um, I agree with you. He's going to be sorely missed. He really was uh, an important character, someone who was so engaging. And I have a little story. He was my first podcast interview ever in June of 2006, when I started my first podcast on renewable energy. Bill Holmberg was my first guest. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So he will be missed. Um, I found a story the other day about Geostellar, which is this solar customer acquisition company looking to use Uber drivers to make sales 
So it's going to Uber drivers and saying, hey, you can use our platform to pitch solar to people in your cars. And I reacted negatively to this. This is like the so-called gig economy running amok, in my opinion. I mean, when I get into a car, I would find it personally intrusive if someone tried to sell me anything in my car ride, even if it was solar. So I kind of think this is a bad idea. Uber isn't fighting it. We haven't seen any numbers about sales conversions, but it's this uh, weird blending of the sharing economy, the so-called gig economy. You know, but who am I to say? Maybe customers will respond. No, the reason I take Uber is so I don't have to talk to anybody. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I only take Uber pool during emergencies. I I just don't want to talk to other people in the car. (laughs) I don't know if that's sad. I guess I just talk to people all day long. So, Hey, that marks the end of the show. We'd love to hear your feedback. Podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We pass those notes around, and we do factor in your input to the show to future topics that we cover Um, We have been getting a lot of email lately. Email in general can be difficult to keep up with. So I apologize if we don't get back to you immediately. We do read every single email and we talk about them amongst ourselves, particularly if they're detailed and they offer some suggestions for um, future show ideas. Uh, Of course, you can subscribe to us anywhere. You know, iTunes, leave us a review there or a rating. Stitcher, Podcast One, SoundCloud the whole gamut of podcast apps. Don't forget that uh, you can get a 15% discount code using the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, uh, when you check out for the Solar Market Insight Conference, which is coming up in San Diego on October 25th and 26th. I'm going to be there hosting a bunch of panels. We're going to have a live interchange podcast, tons of good panels with top CEOs in the industry, so it should be a lot of fun. And as always, this podcast is a lot of fun. Jigger, have a have a good week. And now the that the political season is really ramped up. Uh, I hope you stay positive. <laughs> it's hard not to. <laughs> Catherine, you do the same there in D.C. Potentially the pit of despair. No, Jigger and Jigger and well, Jigger and I are both keynoting a conference at Cornell, but I'm actually going to the school to deliver right. my. Oh, I'm using Jigger, the. You're doing it remotely. I'm using the wonders of of uh, of like what is it called like uh, remote uh, video conferencing right hey saving emissions <laughs> that's all you have to say exactly exactly you should feel bad about yourself Catherine <laughs> we love you and we love all our listeners with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw I'm Stephen Lacey and this is the Energy Gang a production of greentechmedia.com we'll catch you next time